Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature Leslie Marmon Silco in conversation with Molly Gloss from a special event in 2010 at Portland State University's Lincoln Hall. While Leslie Marmon Silco had begun to publish poems and stories in the 1960s, it was her iconic and groundbreaking novel, Ceremony, published in 1978, that established her as one of our greatest living writers. Since then, Silco has gone on to publish widely and across genres with a very distinct voice, deeply rooted in the landscapes and culture of the American Southwest. She joined us in 2010 as part of the launch of her first book of nonfiction, The Turquoise Ledge, which was a highly anticipated release in part because it was her first book in more than a decade. The Turquoise Ledge has been called a, quote, highly original self-portrait and is a book written in fragments that blends nature writing, memoir, history, parables, and legends. When asked by an interviewer about the book's fluid structure and treatment of time, Silco said, quote, Linear time is itself a fiction, which I find tedious and simple-minded. And as she says in this conversation, linear time can also be very dangerous. Silco was in conversation with Molly Gloss, a celebrated writer of many novels, including the acclaimed The Hearts of Horses, and the winner of many prestigious prizes, including the Oregon Book Award. Here's Leslie Marmon Silco in conversation with Molly Gloss. All of your work has had that kind of mystical, spiritual sort of underpinning to it, magical in some ways, always, but especially, I think, in Turquoise Ledge, it's, it's very... Uh, front and forward. But I was surprised when I got to the star beings. And I think it's partly because the spirituality of the Pueblo, as I understand it, comes from underground, from messengers under the earth, the snake, for instance, coming up to, uh, to lead the way for human beings um, that rising out of the earth. And so the star beings that you talk about in Turquoise Ledge surprised me, and I wondered if that, if that image of the star beings comes from Mayan, the Mayan culture, or where does it come from? Well, all of the Udo-Aztecan cultural linguistic group, which include the, the Maya and the Nahua and the Pueblo people, um, um, and of course in Peru, the Incas, all of the, nearly all of the indigenous uh, tribes of the Americas were were paid a great deal of attention to the stars and to astronomy. Mm -hmm. And um, Venus is a really important figure uh, for the Mayans, but also for the Pueblo people. And of course, the sun is a star. And the, the sun, um, the, the equinox and the solstices are um, uh, in, there, there are old Pueblo ruins in New Mexico where there's places on the wall that at the time of the equinox, and a little window in the wall in the, in the, on the time of the equinox, um, the, the, the sun shines through, the winter equinox shines through on the wall. So 
all of in, throughout the Americas, the, the tribal, the indigenous people were great astronomers. And on the plains, there are these, they called them medicine circles with the stones. But now they've uh, done further research and they know that those were used for um, watching the stars and the constellations. So the star beings are very, um, were very important. And when as, as a child, uh, when I used to go out into the, uh, I'd ride my horse, I had a horse when I was, uh, when, I was, when I was a girl and right into the hills on the old petroglyphs around the Pueblo there would be figures of um, the star beings are often seen and the cross which some people mistake as uh, being a Christian cross but it's much older than Christianity um, in the Maya country all through the Udo Aztec and um, throughout the Americas the cross is a symbol for stars or for Venus. Oh. I'm curious about the book about Turquoise Ledge being called a memoir. Um, I guess it's because it struck me as being closer. It's, it's a sort of quotidian um, journal of your days, um, walking in the arroyo, the turquoise pieces of rock that you pick up, and the shapes of them, the colors of them, um, the animals that you encounter. Um, sort of nature writing and some beautiful descriptions of clouds and weather and um, the creatures that you encounter and just beautiful descriptions of rocks. Um, if it's a self-portrait, which I think it's being called that, if it's a self-portrait, to me it's um, a somewhat mysterious <laughs> self-portrait. And, and so I wondered about it's being called a memoir and I wondered if that was a choice that, that you made or that the publisher made, because I know that memoir is sort of a hot thing or has been for a while now in the marketing end of things, and um, I'm just curious about that. Well, I... Who decided to label it memoir? Uh, well, it was in the book contract. <laughs> <laughs> so were they astonished by what you finally gave them? I don't know what they thought. Uh, <laughs> I gave them this huge... This huge, um, I like to start out with a huge pile of manuscript and then it's easier to cut away the fat and come up with something good than it is if you, if you start out with, or if I start out with something skinny and then try to fatten it up, it always looks sort of tacked, uh, tacked on. But I have to say that I was interested in the memoir, um, um, mostly memoirs by politicians and movie stars, everyone snorts and laughs. Or people that have dysfunctional childhoods they want to report on. Right, exactly. And so it, it, it's a much maligned, and in a lot of cases the maligning is, is deserved, but I was interested in what I could do with it. I, 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 I like to have fun with genres, and so I decided I would try to do something this, with this that was um, different from the straight-up memoir, and mm -hmm. uh, what I came up with, and I even think that my, my editor at, at Penguin, too, um, I think felt more like you did, that it's not exactly what you would expect, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a memoir, it's, and it's what I call a memoir, you know, <laughs> and it's about, um, I, I didn't, I remember when my friend, uh, Larry McMurtry started publishing his different memoirs, people would always open them and see if they were mentioned in there. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, you know, I, I just don't even want to get into that. So I decided to have very few 
people, and I decided they are. It's the only just you. right. It's it's, and I decided the only one that, that I really, as being a fiction writer, I feel very sub, very con uh, conscious of writing about real people and things. And is that really true? Is that do I really have the facts right? And so, and also, will you know, um, if I say something about someone, then will someone else be hurt? So I just, so I did kind of decide that the only one that I really know about for sure or have any responsibility for really is myself. And so I tried to keep it that way. And then I thought, in any way, I want this gives the readers, my readers, a kind of uh, interior. Um, view of what goes on in you know inside of my head and what I love what I what really engages me and what um, you know the, the remarks are Silco hasn't published a book in 10 years well what was I doing I was having a great time watching the hummingbirds and the bees and I was walking in the hills and you know uh, and um, I, I was writing and making notes I was also as I describe in there I in uh, late 2005, I decided to seriously go after painting. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm aware that it isn't exactly what one would expect for a memoir, but that's exactly what I wanted to do. Well, uh, do you find that you have to push back a bit against editors and publishers? And I ask that because you so very often um, play around with shifty point of view, shifty verb tenses even, um, definitely with time. Uh, you don't usually deal with linear chronology. Um, you have complex plots. Uh, you very often, especially in Almanac of the Dead, it's a very sort of strange and dense uh, novel with tons of characters in it and multiple plot strands. And, and I've wondered about that, if you have to do you have to push back against editors who object to that kind of thing and want you to simplify? I've been very fortunate, um, and I was even fortunate with this book. Um, um, I, you know, as I said, we started out with a big pile, and um, and then um, as we would get rid of, you know, we, you know, as as I would agree with Paul, yeah, we we're not going to put that in this in in this uh, book. Then, um, you know, he. he I I wanted to be um, cooperative and agreeable as much as possible, and I did want to cut it down. And so it, it was. Uh, there, I, I've been very fortunate. No, he didn't. Uh, and no one. When I was at Simon and Schuster, um, no one ever um, complained. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they with Gardens in the Dunes. Of course, they wanted to get rid of the whole part with the sisters and everything. Which we, we talked right, about Right, we talked about that. The one, the, that one time with Simon and Schuster, they were also trying to hurry me to make me finish it. And they said, we need product. And that really got, you know, hit me wrong. And so I told my agent to tell them, we'll return the, uh, we'll re return the advance. You know, I'm not gonna hurry it up. And uh, that was the one time that that they were pushing around. And then the way to push back is if you talk money and you say, here's your money back. And they get very frightened by that <laughs> because that's their power over the writer. Mm -hmm. And when the writer says, okay. Um, and yeah. so I was, I, was, I, I was very fortunate then. Um, I, don't, I don't know how many people in this audience know that 
that I've written science fiction, um, science fiction stories and a science fiction novel. And what I notice in your work is that you very often are playing around right at the edges of science fiction or what is now sort of being called slipstream, those, those little um, magical edges um, that aren't quite uh, real and aren't quite um, out to the edges of science fiction. Um, there are a couple of reasons why I like science fiction, and I wondered if, if these things resonate with you. Um, I like it for how you can play with metaphor and push metaphor clear out it, it, and concretize it, as it were. I like uh, that in a dystopian sort of way you can say, beware, this is what could happen. And in a utopian sort of way, you can say, here's an alternative. What if we did it this way instead? Mm -hmm. um, and offer uh, other options, other ways of, of being, of living. And I see you doing that in some of your, in some of your work. Um, Almanac of the Dead is absolutely a sort of warning uh, about what could happen. Yes. Um, I wonder, are you, are you tempted to write a flat-out science fiction novel ever? I think I'm moving towards that in the novel that I'm working on now, Blue Sevens, um, but only because the star beings that contacted me when I was painting and working on this book, now I see that they might want to be in, um, in this novel I'm working on and, and play quite a, um, they, they, I think they might want to play an exciting, important role at the end. And <laughs> so I suppose that I, I am, you know, I'm, You're I'm edging right on the I'm, I'm edging that way, but I just work intuitively. So I just write and things come to me and, uh, um, you know, sort of without thinking about it, I've gotten to this point or mm -hmm. threshold. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always appreciated science fiction. When I was teaching at the University of New Mexico, most of the creating, creative writing instructors uh, would throw out those students that were writing science mm -hmm. fiction, yeah. and I was their home. I would always take in those who wanted to write science yeah. fiction, yeah. and so I've always been too. Uh, a, a softie for, uh, and can understand, and you know, and really, of course, those uh, creative writing teachers that threw them out, the the science fiction writers out were, of course, completely wrong. But um, <laughs> well, there's there's one little part of this though that worries me a little bit is that in a in a genre like science fiction, and as far as that goes, um, Native American literature, or even uh, if we think of ourselves as women writers, um, and I, or, or even regional Western writers, which is how I think of both of us, really, um, it's kind of a cozy category because it, um, it provides us with, it guarantees us, really, cert, a certain number of readers. It guarantees us a certain kind of acceptance within that field. Um, but then it also sort of excludes us from literature. It sort of ghettoizes us. Um, I know that uh, my science fiction novel, The Dazzle of Day, was reviewed in the New York Times, but in the, col the column that's reserved for science fiction, yes. where he reviews several, several novels at once, like once a month, science fiction novels. Like the back of the bus. Right, exactly, exactly. So I, I worry sometimes that by 
by putting oneself in, that, in those kind of categories that you, it, it might, on the one hand, lead to a kind of complacency because you're guaranteed these readers and this acceptance within that group, but then it also, um, and, and it might be judged differently too, as it, as it was in the New York Times, uh, judged by a different reader, a different, um, on a different page really, not part of literature. Um, how do we break out of that? How do we fight back against that? I don't know. I just, um, I, I just don't. I don't think about it. I just, uh, it's enough trouble to write, and a lot of these write uh, the best categories. A lot of these categories are marketing strategies. Yeah. yeah, they are. And right away, that's suspect. You know, who wants to pay attention to that? So, quite honestly, I'm not. You know. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that, as I said, because I used to take students that were thrown out of classes for writing science fiction, and I know what a stepchild it's been. Um, but that, that not, when I decide to do something, I just do it and, you know, let the, how do they say, let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's the best thing to do. I hate all of those categories and labelings, and they're getting with their marketing people um, more and more, uh, it seems like um, more and narrower and narrower. And um, so my, my strategy is just to completely ignore them and just to, just to write. And every chance, like in a gathering like this, to say that um, uh, I think that, that those marketing strategies of saying, well, it'll be for women's studies or African-American or Native American or science fiction, um, that's really horribly simplistic. Mm -hmm. And um, it's stupid. Um, you can sell more books if you try to encourage more people from different, rather than these target audiences. Um, but then no one's asked me to come run the publishing. Uh, you know, no one's asked me to come run Penguin. So, um, but it just seems to me that, um, you know, that, 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 that what they've done is really silly and the best thing that we can do is not even let that impinge, not let yeah. that um, stop us. You know, it's not gonna stop me from putting the star beings, if they wanna be in Blue Sevens, this novel I'm working on, they will be. And you know what the star beings would say? Well, they'd say, too bad, Leslie, if you get stuck <laughs> in the back part of the, the New York Times, the, 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 the book review, you know? Too bad, that's a human problem. The star beings don't care about human <laughs> Um I read, and you know, I've been reading so much Silco the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I feel sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's been wonderful. But I have no idea where I read this, which, which of your many books I've read this in. But it, it, you said, popular fiction in my dad's day in some ways was better than it is now. And one thing we both share is that neither of us are coming out of Iowa Writers Workshop or any kind of MFA program. We're both sort of self-taught uh, writers, as it were, with BAs. Um, they're now calling uh, this fiction that so many of these MFA programs are bringing, bringing out program fiction. Um, mm -hmm. I was reading in the London Review of Books just this week um, a review of Mark, Mark McGurl, his book, which is about the MFA programs and 
it's not so much about whether they're good or bad, it's about the kind of literature that's coming out of people who've been through the, the major MFA programs, like Iowa or like Stanford or the, the program at Missoula. Columbia. Um, yeah. Columbia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the person reviewing McGurl's book is the one who said, um, these kinds of books are, what they teach in MFA programs very often is really excellent technique. Mm -hmm. So that you, when you go into a bookstore and you look at all these books from these MFA graduates, you very often, you, you very seldom see a badly written sentence. You can pretty much guarantee that you're gonna be looking at a book that maybe has a handful of really beautiful sentences in it, mm -hmm. and maybe uh, at least one character that you really care about, that, that, or maybe not care about, that, but that feels real, that mm -hmm. feels really fully developed. Um, but all of this is sort of in, the way I feel when I go into a bookstore and look at all those books, is that all of this is sort of in service to a story that I really don't care about. Exactly. It, it's a, it's, um, there, there's this sort of uh, urban dysfunctional fiction that, yes. that, um, yes. that's just everywhere in bookstores now, and where story is not really what they're about. It's about the beauty of the technique or something. I, I'm not quite how to, how to articulate that. Um, but a lot of these books are, are sort of whining about their dysfunctional lives or their dysfunctional childhoods, um, and there's not much story going on in any of them. This is not you. This is not me. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering how you feel when you walk into a bookstore and you look at the books that are on the front table in the bookstore. I just walk on past, and <laughs> I'm, headed, um, I'm headed to get, you know, the Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Le Guin, or I'm going after H.G. Wells. Um, I don't pay too, I, I, I'm embarrassed to confess, but I, I don't pay too much attention. I certainly have You're not reading a lot I'm of not re contemporary I'm not fiction? Reading them. No, because it's exactly as you say, wonderful descriptions of little mittens on the hands of the little children going out into the, mm -hmm. you know, snowy morning, but, but but then what? You nothing's know, happening. Nothing, nothing's happening. And um, it's just not to, not to my liking. And I just feel that there's so many wonderful, uh, so much wonderful work that's already uh, been written that I still need to read. Mm -hmm. And maybe someday I'll get to the little mittens and the snowflakes. <laughs> but um, there's too many other more important things um, for me to read. And um, I, was, I was accepted into the... Uh, writing program at Columbia years ago, but they couldn't come up with the money fast enough. So I planned, I, I, I got pregnant with my second, uh, my younger son, and um, went to live on, on the Navajo reservation and teach at Diné College. And for years I used to wonder, gee, you know, what would it have been like to have gone to Columbia to the writing, School of Writing? And then I met my friend Maymay Bersenbrugge, who went through the school. She's a wonderful poet, but there are all these stories of people that went there and never wrote again. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, but they were destroyed mm -hmm. as writers. And mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, I met a, a, a man who's a, a professor of literature uh, at uh, Boulder, the, this was years ago, and he'd been to the Iowa program and the same thing happened. He never wrote again after mm -hmm. he was in the programs. So I often tell these stories to undergraduates who um, are wondering whether 
you know, they're, they're, they're seniors now and, you know, they've been riding and should they try to go? And I tell these as cautionary tales, mm -hmm. uh, um, not even getting into the sort of cookie cutter um, mm -hmm. uh, aspect of, yeah. of, you know, what they come out with. Certainly there can be reasons why you would want to get an MFA. Um, finding a peer group may be one of them, or if you live in a remote place, to, um, to be with other writers. But uh, I think really the way you learn to be a writer is by writing. Yep, yep, that's it. Yeah. Um, Barry Lopez, who lives here in Oregon, I've heard him say, not every writer, but many writers all they're doing their whole life is looking at a small handful of questions and turning them over and looking at them in different ways over and over the same little handful of questions. I wonder what those questions would be for you. I suppose, how, how can human beings uh, find peace um, with themselves and with one another? Um, how can we... Um, um, how can we learn from um, th there are so much so, so many things that we can learn from the wider world um, uh, not just from human the, the accumulation of, of knowledge by humans um, and just um, how can we love and be loved by this um, you know this living, all, all of the living things around us in the world and, and in the sky. I guess, I guess those are mm -hmm. some of the things that I go over, mm -hmm. over and over. I see all of those in the three novels of yours that I've read. And I guess also, too, how can we defend ourselves? Uh, what lengths can we go to, uh, to resist or fight off um, those... Uh, uh, those beings, those people that would uh, threaten um, uh, threaten this uh, you know this 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 beauty of the world, this life, this vitality. The um, thing you call witchery and ceremony, right? Witchery, the 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 this the destruction, the appetite for destruction mm -hmm. that um, and disruption. we all are in disruption. That we all are as humans are born with that possibility or capacity and how do we manage it and how do we, uh, when faced with it again, how do we defend ourselves, uh, how do we resist, um, how we, we cannot become like the destroyers, you know, we, we, and yet we, we want to defend ourselves and those things, but we can't then become um, destroyers and slaughterers and killers because then we're just becoming that which we were fearful of and, 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 and trying to defend ourselves from. We be, in other words, we really lose when we become like that and it's a great struggle because of course we live in a world where that's exactly the way humans push one another and, and, uh, and, and so that, that's, that's one of the things that I, that I uh, turn over and over. And it's a perfect, perfect segue, too, to something I want to say about ceremony and ask about ceremony. Um, any of you who've ever heard me speak about um, 
answer the question, which often authors are asked, um, what are some of your favorite authors? What are some of your favorite novels? Um, I always lead with ceremony. Uh, I Thank say you. that ceremony is one, of, is one of the great American novels of the 20th century. Um, I don't say the great Native American. I say it's one Thank of the you. great American novels of the 20th century. Um, I used to, I, I've taught literature of the American West a number of times at Portland State, and I would end often with ceremony F as the end piece after teaching uh, the Virginian. Right. And then a, one of Willa Cather's usually, um, Death Comes for the Archbishop, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then maybe an A.B. Guthrie, uh, maybe The Big Sky or The Way West, mm -hmm. and then Ceremony. Um, I think of Ceremony as, um, we were talking earlier about one of the reasons I like science fiction is because it can give you another way of looking at, at, at your life, at, mm -hmm. at the world, another way of being. And right. um, it seems to me that Ceremony in some ways is a retelling of our classic cowboy myth. Um, where the hero is going to save us all with his two guns. And, um, one, and I always say about Ceremony that the bravest thing Teo does at the end of that novel is turn away from the violence. Um, he's, um, it, it's a story about story and the power of story in our lives, the power to heal and to shape our community, our human community. And he uses story to help us understand who, we, who, who he is, who we are, uh, what we value, um, how to conduct ourselves, really, and mm -hmm. the way he conducts himself at the end by, by turning away from the violence. But it's a, um, it's a frightening moment when he does that because uh, people die because he doesn't, he doesn't um, interfere with what he sees happening right. below him. And I wonder if you've had, what kind of um, reaction you've had from readers about that. Is there any resistance from readers to, to the fact that Teo does not um, sort of complete the typical story of, of violence in the end? No? No, um, at least not that I've heard. You're the first person to, to sort of point that out or bring it out. But it was, a, uh, I remember when I was working on it, first of all, Ceremony started as a short story. It was supposed to be a funny short story. Funny. Well, I know, and the longer I worked on it, it was like, this is not funny. It, well, <laughs> I started with that character, Harley, in the beginning, who can always find a drink. He, the one that his family sent him out to the farthest sheep camp um, to keep him away from, from bars. And, and this guy really, there really was someone like that. And he could always, whether he caught a wild donkey or hot-wired a tractor, or one time this guy even caught a ride with some archaeologists that were out there. He could always thwart his family's attempts to keep him sober. And we always thought that was, oh, that was really funny. And so I thought I would just write a funny short story about this guy. That part is kind of funny. And, and, but, but then Teo came. All of a sudden, this character Teo came in. And I think it was right about at that point, because I had started thinking about, well, what if you had to have drink as badly as Harley did? And I, I think I, I was beginning to go in that direction. And then Teo came mm -hmm. in. So I went along, and then I realized 
when I was about, oh, a quarter of the way into it, that someone would kill him. He would be killed. Tao? Um, Tao would be killed because he wasn't fitting back in and the authorities, um, I just had the feeling they were going to come and shoot him. The police were going to come after him. And I thought, no, I, don't, I won't let that, that won't be. I refuse to let that happen. So, so then as a writer, I had to begin to imagine and you know, create a way so that he not only doesn't get killed, but he actually can recover. And what's interesting is um, uh, Rudolfo Anaya in Bless Me Ultima mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has a veteran from World War II that's very troubled, uh, you know, now that what is it, post-traumatic stress uh, or shell shock. And in Rudolfo Anaya's, it's an episode in Bless Me Ultima, but he gets shot mm -hmm. by the police. And so um, Bless Me Ultima, I think, was published after Ceremony, but that was really something, a, 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 a kind of um, moment for me um, to have to decide, no, mm -hmm. I won't let that happen, mm -hmm. and then to work out. And then even to the point of not um, engaging in violence. Um, you know, it's so much a part of the way that uh, we in the United States justify all of these wars and terrible things by mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, we have to go in there to protect or stop. Mm -hmm. But in the end, what we end up doing is causing even worse um, harm and greater death. And so sometimes, um, and so, so I know that, that what he does by holding back and not intervening uh, might strike some people strangely, but there's the, there, the, the people that associated themselves with emo and those sort of destroyer people in ceremony, they were in that, um, they chose to be in that predicament and then to have Teo sort of storm in and, and, and try to uh, change you know, everything or to, to do harm to them, it just uh, seemed to me not, um, not right and, and, and in a way um, you know, that that's a danger or a pitfall of you know, wanting to be the, like a policeman or a That's a the fixer. cowboy, but that's the cowboy myth, isn't it? Right, that Where, is the cowboy um, myth. And we solve everything with violence. That's, that's what always happens in the, right. in the cowboy movies. Is, You're right, and I refused. I just, I, just, I just didn't want to write another book. There, there are so many, yeah. uh, especially in American literature, there are mm -hmm. just so many uh, stories and novels uh, that go in that direction. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember... Uh, and then thinking, I don't want this to happen. And then the next question is, well, then what are you going to do? How are you going to, what are you going to do? One up there by you, Andrew. So Q&A time. Um, are there questions out there? Hi, I was wondering what your writing process is, if you have a daily routine, or if it varies, or has changed much over the years? Well, it's, it, it's, it's changed, um, um, or at least it sort of changed for the, the turquoise ledge. I'd have to say for ceremony and for almanac of the dead, it was nose to the grindstone. It was get a room, you go in that room at a certain time of day, not allowed to leave that room for a certain amount of time. 
while in that room, you're allowed to write. Um, you can write letters, uh, you can write gibberish, um, you have to write, you can't do anything else. Oh, sometimes you can take a nap, but, <laughs> and, um, you know, and what you're doing is breaking your resistance because even now, you know, the, the sight of a blank page or an empty, empty screen is quite daunting, you know. Me I'm, too. I'm, I'm sure Molly will agree. And so if you want to get a novel written, um, you have to go in there when you have a migraine headache. Actually, what's strange is the part of, you can actually write a novel while having a migraine. But I could, I, but I wouldn't, I, would, I was able to do that, but you can't balance your checkbook when you're having a bad <laughs> headache. Um, but you absolutely, um, you don't have, you, you, if you waited for inspiration, what would happen, you know, nothing would ever get done. So you have to be very brutal. Sometimes I would say, you know, I, maybe I'll have someone lock me in the room and then unlock it <laughs> so that, um, so, so and it's, no access to solitaire or no, the internet. No, no internet, no telephone, uh, nothing, nothing like that um, to get things going. And then um, to always stop on Saturday and Sunday. When I was working on ceremony, I was just, I would get going on it and I was, I was excited by it and I was also wanting to get it written. But uh, so a few times I did seven days in a row. Um, and then on Monday, I looked what I had, at what I had written on Sunday and Saturday, and it was crummy, and I had to throw it away. And I realized that for me, too, part of managing, not only, not only is you, do you have to get yourself into the room, you have to know when to get out of the room yeah. and just take a break. And uh, <laughs> so, so, um, so that's the sort of conundrum. But, and uh, I, I get... Uh, I get ideas uh, um, and, and, and for characters, but once I get the characters going, they start, they take over, and I just sort of follow along. But you said your process is diff was different for Turquoise Ledge. Well, because Turquoise Ledge is nonfiction, pretty much. And um, <laughs> I mean, as much as, you know, uh, I mean, I do the best I can to try to. <laughs> um, but it was more, I, I liked it because um, it, it was, I, I got to go for, I had to go, I, I had to go for walks. And then when I came back from the walks, I'd always had seen something, something would have happened or I would have seen something. One, one so, thing, I'm, I'm gonna interrupt just because one thing you said in, in the book was that you, you couldn't, you didn't like to take a camera with you, and when, when you were walking, you didn't like to think about what you would write about later, that that, that sort of would ruin the walk. Exactly. So you wouldn't think about the writing until you got back to the exactly. house. Exactly, exactly. That, that was part of the process, too. But I, I and, and I, was, I was actually gathering material that I put into the turquoise ledge, but I also had all of the older notes and little pieces that I had written in years uh, years past too. So um, when I would uh, go in to work on the turquoise ledge, it just uh, it, it was a little bit easier than chasing after these characters. Uh, it was more. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, it, I knew a little bit better what was going 
to happen. When I was writing Almanac of the Dead, I had no idea where it was going. The MacArthur Fellowship was five years long. At the end of five years, I had this stack of manuscript like that and had no idea what was, you know, five and years you done. passed. I wasn't you were... finished. And it was just sickening. And I thought, oh my God, I wasted five years of the MacArthur, because I didn't put it in the bank like some people did and keep my job. I took a leave of absence without pay, and I used that money to live on while I wrote. And um, I was, I, and so that was when I went outside and painted the huge mural on the side of the building of the giant snake with human skulls in its stomach and its, its message, uh, which, which I put in Spanish because the Arizona legislature, uh, brilliant genius legislature, I think they're, the, they're, at one time when I first moved in 78, the average education for the Arizona legislature was the eighth grade. And um, I think it's You're fallen. I think it's fallen since then, I think. Uh, 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 but um, now I, for, I forgot what I was saying. because That's what I get for making fun of the Arizona legislature. Uh, oh, but they, um, um, while, I was, while I was working on, uh, while I was uh, working on Almanac, um, uh, they had outlawed, they made English the only language. So they basically outlawed Spanish, outlawed Native American languages, um, to be used in public, whatever that would be. So I made sure on my mural to write the message in Spanish. in Spanish to, of course, break that, you know, to fly in the face of that. And it said, the people are cold, the people are hungry, the rich have stolen the land, the rich have stolen freedom, the people demand justice, otherwise revolution. And that was the message the, that the snake was bringing. And after I finished that mural, it took me about six months, um, and I went back inside, and the whole other uh, part of uh, Almanac of the Dead fell into place, yeah. the whole part. And so now I realize that part of my process is to use, is to, at some point, I will just know that I'm supposed to do paint some kind of painting, mm -hmm. and um, which is what you did, sort of in the middle of Turquoise Ledge. Yep, that's what I did in the middle of Turquoise Ledge, and uh, got into contact with the star beings that way, because as I painted these, taken from some of the old petroglyphs that I remembered as a child, and um, also like one of the one of the beings is uh, from a there's a a, a very old petroglyph of Venus, the star being Venus as a rattlesnake, with, uh, uh, which is over at the, what's called the Waco Tanks in, in Texas. And um, I, I watched one of my rattlesnakes in the front yard and saw his beautiful markings on the snake's uh, face and realized that that could be a star being um, mask. But when I started out doing the um, star being portraits, the idea was just to paint and that I wouldn't do any writing because I wanted to really, you know, I figured um, we, none of us know how long we have in this world. If I was ever really going to um, take time out to paint, it should be then. And what was wonderful was, once again, the painting led to writing, mm -hmm. that as I painted, I began to 
feel like I was getting these ideas from these, you know, as I say that they began to sort of communicate with me. And, um, and what they said wasn't at all um, reassuring, you know. Um, first of all, they told me that they, that, and I had to, I, I, they're on canvases that are three feet, um, three feet, uh, three feet wide and four feet tall. And they told me that human beings, um, um, that they wanted to intimidate human beings and that human beings deserve to be intimidated um, because of their behavior and that if I ever, when I hang the paintings, they must be uh, hung very high to also intimidate humans. And so the, these were the kinds of things that, um, messages that I began to get from them. And, and so it was, um, so part of my process is at some point to, to turn to, um, uh, to painting or to art and then in the most um, amazing ways um, things come to me. Um, I, I don't know if that's intuitively or, or <laughs> whatever, but I get it, they, they get it, things can get in touch with me that way. So I often tell writers that, you know, maybe it's not painting, maybe it's music or dance, or maybe it is just walking, but um, that, that there, it, it's important, um, even though you have to lock yourself in that room, at the same time, there, there have to be these other, other avenues. Take a break. Yeah, and that I really believe that our subconscious knows more than our conscious selves, and that, um, that in order to access um, the dream, the, you know, the dream level or subconscious, um, that we, different writers have to do different, different things. Some of Leslie's drawings and paintings that she made during the writing of Turquoise Ledge are in the Kenyan Review this month. I don't know if, if any of you have an opportunity to see, to see that journal. Yeah, that was, I was contacted by Chapeline, the grasshopper. This was after I had finished with, uh, with uh, uh, I'm not completely finished, I don't think, with the star being portraits. But one day, uh, and of course the story's in Turquoise Ledge, but one day I, um, there were these really large grasshoppers that I'd never seen before. Beautifully colored. They were beautifully colored. They looked like someone had painted them. And um, they looked at me and they didn't act like insects they, you know, that you could just dismiss. And I paid attention to them, and then I had some more encounters with them, and then I realized that Lord Chapulin, um, and Chapulin is the uh, Nahuatl word for grasshopper, and of course um, the, uh, the gardens, Chapulte, I can't say it now, but the gardens in Mexico City, of course, are named for mm -hmm. Chapulin, and I realized that he's one of the lords. Um, uh, there's Taloc, the lord of rain. Um, there's nine lords of the night, actually, um, and, and, and more. But um, the grasshopper, uh, Chap Lord Chapulin, wanted his portrait painted, and, and so it turned so into those this are the whole portraits story. In, yes, in and the so, yes, that I put in the Kenyan Review. Are we getting close up front? There's one here in the front. Just hearing about your writing process um, just over your life and your relationship with your own literature and also your relationship with the entities that want to be in your literature is in not solitary in an energetic sense, but that it seems like your company largely is not very embodied 
And I'm wondering how your writing affects your relationship with people and in the past and also now. Oh, good, good, really good question. What happened to me writing Almanac of the Dead for 10 years, every day I spent time with those characters and it was my really big break. With writing Ceremony, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't feel that isolated, but there was something about those angry spirits. It was as if uh, Zora Neale Hurston wrote about the, the people that are possessed by the spirits as being ridden, that they're the horse that the spirits ride. And I really felt like a lot of the really old spirits of the Americas uh, the Caribbean, that they were riding me. And so I spent 10 years with them. And toward the end, I knew I had to hurry up and finish the novel because my relationship with the disembodied, it was exactly that. They were more interesting. They, they were more exciting. Um, they actually began to displace human beings. I know that sounds really weird. I understood that, you know, I could still tell the difference, but I knew that I had to finish that novel <laughs> because I was, um, and I've never, <laughs> since that time, I really, um, sometimes I, 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 I'm sort of like a hermit. And, and I, still, I still love to see people and to be with people, but I need much more time to myself now what, what is the effect, you know, the effect on the people that love you and your family? Well, you know, more than once I've had a, 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 a boyfriend or lover or somebody say, well, you, you care more about the writing than you care for me. And um, that isn't really so. It's, you know, it's different. But um, it, it really, over the years, it, it, re it really has changed me. And no one ever told me that when I was taking creative writing classes or talking about <laughs> writing, no one told me that every book you write will change you and you'll never be the same. And that's okay because in order for a reader to be affected and in order for a book to go into the world and change people, I think um, they can't be changed unless the writer was changed. But no one ever told me that. And no one ever told me the kind of um, choices that you have to make in terms of being around people in solitude. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't, it wouldn't have stopped me. You know, I can sit here tonight and say that. But truly, each book has changed me. And um, I'm sure that I'm, I'm different now because of, uh, because of writing the, the Turquoise Ledge and some of the things that I found out and, uh, you know, just the process. So yeah, it changes you. and. Um, um, I, I imagine if you spoke to musicians and dancers and painters, um, uh, they, might, they might say the same, you know. But that's the part that people don't, don't um, that you don't know about or that you don't hear about. But definitely every book I write changes me and I'm not the same person each time. So. And Almanac was the one that was really the most dangerous. And, and I'm afraid sometimes that they'll come back, some of the characters that were in Almanac. But now I'm not so afraid because in Blue Sevens, which is a fraternal twin of Almanac, not an identical twin, um, now the star beings seem to have come into it. And they'll, I know that they will 
they will make all the rules and things and they will dictate and and it's nice having it sort of out of my hands now. I just have to listen to them. Although, although with Almanac, those angry spirits, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's such an angry book. But it, you know, it wasn't, I mean, of course, part of it was mine, but so much of it came from some other place. And I was just the one that was, um, had the task um, just like when I was told that I had to do the star being portraits, even though I would not ordinarily choose to do a portrait. And, um, but um, when I know that that's what it is, then that's what I have to do. And, and um, that's, that's the most powerful kind of force, you know, so, so it can be disruptive. I think we're going to close up now, maybe. We're going to close up. That was Leslie Marmon Silko in conversation with Molly Gloss from a Literary Arts special event in 2010. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.